Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall, and I am your host, Eric Baker. And today we are sneaking through the stinky, sneaky streets of a fake London. We're going through the rat-infested Dunwall. Are they rats or are they street piranhas? Because that's what they feel like to me. Maybe a little column A, a little column B at this point, because <laughs> we're going to be talking about Arcane's Dishonored. Yeah, man. Cool game. So Assassins, I feel like we're kind of peaking after Assassin's Creed, except mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed, it's kind of a, a very limited, you know, you're set in a very particular storyline. There's not a lot of freedom in your kills, your decisions. Like, mm-hmm. you just got to take people out. This is a game where you got to do that in a first-person setting. You got to make decisions on whether or not to kill people or just be sneaky altogether. And it was a really unique game for 2012. And I think it tickled the fancy of both stealth gamers and also people who just might want to go through or hack and slash, you know, do some cool assassination kills. Because I know for me, I tried a bit of both of it just to get the feeling. And sometimes stealth worked really well. Sometimes, you know, you had an oopsie and you're like, well, it's time for a brawl now. (laughs) You know, and they made sure that both elements of that gameplay felt good it didn't feel tedious you know like i was never into like any of the tom clancy stuff that involved like sneaking and not being seen and going through that couldn't really get in with sam fisher so this was more of my gameplay style absolutely man and i feel like a lot of people felt that way it's really highly praised game was a big game for 2012 was a big hit at e3 when it premiered let's get into it Dishonored is a 2012 action-adventure game developed by Arcane Studios and published by Bethesda Softworks. Set in the fictional, plague-ridden industrial city of Dunwall, Dishonored follows the story of Corvo Atano, bodyguard to the Empress of the Isles. He is framed for her murder and forced to become an assassin, seeking revenge on those who conspired against him. The game is played from a first-person perspective and allows the player to undertake a series of missions in a variety of ways, with an emphasis on player choice. Missions can be completed through stealth, combat, or a combination of both. Exploring each level opens new paths and alternatives for accomplishing mission goals, and it is possible to complete all missions in a non-lethal manner. The story and missions are changed in response to the player's violent actions or lack thereof. During its two and a half years in production, Several versions of Dishonored were developed before the creation of Dunwall, inspired by late 19th century London and Edinburgh. The game was set to take place in medieval Japan and 17th century London. So they had a lot of options coming with this, and we'll discuss this as well, because Bethesda was the one who came with them and were like, hey, 
what about like feudal Japan? And this pretty much almost entirely French studio is like, we know nothing about that. Let's do Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Good call. Mm -hmm. So let's break down the studio. Arcane has a very interesting development. It all started with Raphael Colantonio. So Colantonio had been part of the French offices of Electronic Arts, or EA, or the devil as some may know, during the 1990s as part of the quality assurance and localization team for some of Origin Systems' titles, including System Shock. In the late 1990s, Colantonio noted there had been a change in EA as with the release of the PlayStation. The company had shown more interest in sports titles and avoiding non-sports titles from companies like Origin. So going that route of like, let's just like churn them out with EA. This is where we're going to make the big bucks. Colantonio then left the company and after a brief time at Infogrames, was able to co-found Arcane with financial help from his uncle, with their first goal to make a second sequel to Ultima Underworld, The Stygian Abyss. Colantonio was among the 11 founders, of which six were developers, when the company was established on October 1st, 1999 in Lyon, France, with an investment of 1,150,000 French francs. So, you know, coming from a gaming background, having, you know, a little moolah from the old rich uncle, was able to start his own thing. While Colantonio had support from Paul Neurath, one of the original developers of Ultima Underworld, EA, who owned the rights, would not allow Arcane to make a sequel with their intellectual property unless he accepted some of their provisions. Colantonio refused to accept this, and instead had Arcane set out on a game in the spirit of Ultima Underworld, Arcs Fatalis. Colantonio had difficulty in getting a publisher, though. With finances nearly exhausted, they had signed one small publisher who had gone bankrupt within the month. They later secured Joe Wood Productions for publication, eventually releasing in 2002. While the game was well-received, it was unfortunately considered a commercial failure. Arcs Vitalis' critical praise gave Arcane the opportunity for them to work with Valve to develop a new title on their Source engine, and Colantonio opted to make a sequel, Arcs Vitalis 2. However, the poor sales of the first game made it difficult to find a publisher. They were approached by Ubisoft and asked to apply the Arcs Vitalis game engine to their Might and Magic. This became Dark Messiah of Might and Magic, released in October 2006. It refined the first-person melee combat of Arx Fatalis with a lesser emphasis on role-playing elements. During this time, Colantonio moved from France to Austin, Texas, leaving the main studio in the hands of his colleagues while he set up Arcane Austin in June 2006. Over the next several years, most of the development work was done out of Leon's studio where production costs were cheaper due to beneficial economic conditions while the Austin studio was used for establishing relationships with other studios as to generate work for higher projects to augment Arcane's own projects. So basically, they were trying to use that Austin office to build these relationships and also get a cash flow to do the games they want to do. Between 2006 and 2007, the company was working in conjunction with Valve to develop a spin-off game in the Half-Life series called Ravenholm expanding on work that Warren Spector's Junction Point Studios had done previously. While Arcane and Valve had worked together to produce about 9-10 to levels for a playable alpha build, the project was cancelled, believed to be due to lateness and cost of the project to date. On completion of Dark Messiah, Arcane started development on a new first-person shooter title, The Crossing, using the Source engine. 
Colantonio described the crossing as cross-player, having principally single-player gameplay, but influenced by online multiplayer elements. The title had a budget of around $15 million, which made it difficult to find a publisher that did not include strict rules and requirements in the contract. While Colantonio had finally found one offer that was satisfactory to him, the studio was approached by EA to help work on LMNO, a game it was developing with Steven Spielberg. With the EA offer being more valuable and more stable, Colantonio decided to cancel the crossing to focus the studio on LMNO. However, about two years after this, EA opted to cancel LMNO, as well as forcing Arcane to take up assisting roles for a few years. This included developing the multiplayer component of Activision's Call of Duty World at War and helping with, quote, design, animation, and art for 2K Marin's Bioshock 2. So it's still the unfortunateness of, like, had some games come out that bombed, but were, you know, people liked them. And then, like, okay, we had this really cool shooter project, but we'll go back with EA. It's Spielberg, you know, can't turn Spielberg down, baby. And then for it to just flop, you know, this is, this is hurting. While trying to grow the Austin studio, Colantonio met with Harvey Smith, a game developer that he had met earlier in his career and kept in contact with. Colantonio and Smith recognized they had several similar talents and initially felt that the two of them working together in the same studio would be too troublesome. But they then considered if they were working on the same game together, how their talents would mesh. They quickly devised a ninja pitch that would tie into the basis of Dishonored and worked out how they would share responsibilities to the studio, with Smith formally coming on board Arcane in 2008. Entering into 2010 with no game of their own, and their contract work having started to run down, the studio was preparing to let go of its staff to conserve costs. They were then approached by Bethesda Softworks, who had an idea of a stealth-based game set in Field Japan, which they wanted to name Dishonored, and felt Arcane's talents were ideal for the job and wanted to contract them for the title. According to Colantonio, Bethesda's vice president of development, Todd Vaughn, had seen Arcane's work in Arx Fatalis and its sequel. And while Bethesda had been interested in these, they did not react fast enough before Arcane had taken another route. Vaughn told Arcane that they were interested in publishing a first-person, immersive game, and Arcane was the only option they had in mind. Colantonio recognized Bethesda was the best fit for Arcane, considering the similarities between Arx Fatalis and the Elder Scrolls games. Arcane worked under contract for a few months, but soon were fully acquired by ZeniMax Media, Bethesda's parent, by August 2010, as part of ZeniMax's larger growth after recently acquiring id Software, you know, where we get Doom from. With financial backing and a parent company that appreciated good game design, Arcane had the time and creative freedom to revamp Bethesda's original concept for Dishonored based on the pitch that Colantonio and Smith had earlier developed, and moved the setting from Japan to one inspired by London while retaining the Dishonored name and stealth aspects. So Dishonored, the game name, makes a lot of sense to me, I think, in, in a feudal Japan setting. So mm-hmm. I am a little bit surprised that they decided to make that switch, but if they were more familiar with the London setting, that makes sense to me. And I think they were already kind of pitching an idea with that. Like, they didn't have a game in mind, but they had this setting that they were already kind of brainstorming together and thought, we can keep the name. Like, you know, have him lose his honor of what his, you know, basically as a guard for this. You know, he loses that honor because she died under his watch. Kind of continues with it. Sure, it doesn't have to be so stereotypical. Mm -hmm. 
So Bethesda Softworks first announced Dishonored as a first-person stealth action-adventure game for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360 platforms on July 7, 2011. Like we said, it was originally set in medieval Japan, but the idea was dropped early in the game's development because of the difficulties presented in marketing the setting and because no member of the design team knew much about the culture. Arcane moved the setting to London in 1666, considering that the city was recognizable to Europeans and Americans. Later designs inspired by added gameplay mechanics such as floodlights, electrified barriers, and 20th century technologies meant it no longer resembled London, and Arcane opted to develop a fictional city. The city of Dunwall, designed to be a contemporary and cool period piece, was inspired by late 19th century and early 20th century London and Edinburgh. Describing why London had been an initial setting and remained a significant inspiration, creative director Harvey Smith said, quote, Because it was the last year of the plague and the year of the Great Fire of London, which of course ended the plague by burning the slums down. In this kind of game, you're always looking for a way to up the tension and frankly make the world a little more perilous and justify why there aren't giant crowds of people at the market. Then people had the idea for swarms of rats, and we were talking independently about possession, and we wondered if you should be able to possess rats, and if they could clean up corpses so you didn't have to hide them. All these pieces just work together. You know, you're just casually out at the coffee shop, just, you know, you, you pull a little tab out of your coffee, you're blowing it off a little bit, you go, what if we controlled rats to eat bodies? Like I said, man, these are just straight street piranhas. I mean, we're talking oh, yeah. straight out of a horror flick. They just come up, swarm, bury, eat to the bone. There's not a body left anymore. It's insane. And it, and it worked well. You know, we'll talk about that as one of the skills that you'll be able to get when you're Corvo. So visual design director Viktor Anatov described his inspiration from London as, quote, a big metropolis. It's messy, it's chaotic and intense, and it's both exotic and familiar to Americans and to Europeans. He highlighted the importance of that familiarity to different cultures because, quote, you want to communicate to a lot of people when you make a new piece of fiction. He said that Edinburgh provided a sense of containment and a variety of architectural designs, which were combined with a futuristic vision, which Antonov said was not comparable to the brass, rivets, and builds of steampunk design. Antonov and art director Sebastian Mitten traveled to London and Edinburgh for research, taking photographs of people, places, and objects. The pair avoided the busier streets, and focused on side streets and alleyways that would better suit the game's world. Mitten stated, quote, We were trying to design the game from a rat's viewpoint. If we have a small city, from a constrained viewpoint, what are all the different angles that we can explore? Inspiration also came from the artwork of John Atkinson Grimshaw, Canaletto, and Gustave Doré. To aid the designers when it came to building out the city, the world map was designed as a single piece of art, and was sectioned so the designers were clear on where each mission takes place. So an overall piece broke down into chunks. In-game characters were inspired by illustrations from adventure and pirate stories such as Captain Blood from 1922, the work of Charles Dana Gibson, and mugshots of Edwardian London and Australia. An anatomy expert helped ensure the morphology of character faces represented Great Britain, while Arcane maintained a sense of realism and political incorrectness. Mitten established defining groups for characters such as rich, poor, and hostile with specific anatomy and posture designs, and animators 
created stylized movements for each social class and specific characters to help convey emotions. The city guards, for example, have small heads, low shoulders, and big hands with animations that blend human and monkey movements. The designers conceived the tall boys as town criers. Stilts were later added after Mitten noticed someone cleaning their office facade while wearing stilts. The tall boy design evolved into a lamplighter that would light street lamps with whale oil tanks, but after further development, the designers considered that their tall mechanical legs allowed them to burn the dead and deal with plague-infected citizens while remaining above them and avoiding infection, leading to their final design as a guard armed with a bow. Mitten suggested adding a phosphorus canister to the tall boy's backs for aesthetic reasons, but Smith suggested whale oil, which in turn led Mitten to design the whaling ships to give the whales a visible presence in the city. For other technologies, designers conceptualize using 18th century technology to build modern items and vehicles, and creating 18th century items using modern tools. So yeah, the steampunkiness of it to give it that like, oh, it's in the past, but it's all these future tech things because now that this whale oil has been discovered, this whole industrial revolution can take over with like these scientists and everything creating anew. The heart that Corvo uses is a human heart modified with technology and the supernatural that helps the player to find collectible items in the levels and plays a part related to informing the player's decision about when to apply violence or not making it a really interesting, more subtle part of the power fantasy. The heart provides contextual verbal feedback to the player, offering insight into a particular location, the secrets or history of a character, and its own origins. The heart was originally designed as a method of identifying assassination targets using vibration and sound mechanics, kind of like Eagle Vision from Assassin's Creed, but this is more on the auditory and haptic and less of the visual. The design then developed into the concept of the heart speaking and feeling alive and having its own agenda. As a result of player-conducted testing of the game, the designers decided that a more direct navigation system was required. The heart's gameplay role continued to change, and it continued to provide narration. The heart's gameplay role continued to change, and it continued to provide narration on its perceptions of different characters, which helped to reinforce the narrative themes and to differentiate the city's social classes in a more subtle alternative than having them provide, you know, more dialogue. Cole Antonio and Smith were concerned that optional use of the heart would result in some players missing the information it provides, but they considered that it was part of giving the player the freedom to choose how they wanted to play. Makes sense. I think that was a good decision. And it's cool for that to be a little bit like the eagle eye, like you said, and but for it to be a more morality... Uh, more of a morality application, I guess. Exactly. And have it more of that life breathing. Instead of just like vibrating and like, you know, pulsating, it's like, hey, listen, <laughs> not like that, but that's pretty much kind of what it was. It was a very distinguished Navi that would tell you more about these people and more about, you know, what was going on in the world. And finally, the Hound's Pit pub, which acts as a base for the player, was initially a larger structure. Filling out the interior of the pub required too many stairs and rooms, and the large amount of climbing made navigation confusing. The pub's exterior was shrunk to resemble an Edwardian building, but the interior remained labyrinthian, so that Colantonio required that a chain be placed outside Corvo's bedroom, allowing him to reach the roof quickly. So all this labyrinthian aspect of it was cool, but they didn't want the player to have to like navigate constantly trying to leave. So they're like, walk up to the chain, that's the roof. 
The art team continued to receive requests throughout development, requiring them to extend pre-production until the end of the development cycle as each design was hand-drawn. So as this stuff had to shift, they had to go back to the literal drawing board and edit those things in to make it work. It sounds like they had to deal with a lot of detail in this setting that just at a certain point got to be like too much. It was, and especially like you're trying to do this kind of on rails but not and make it really cool and interesting and all this other stuff it just i think it was it's i'm glad it was gone because it would have been way too much fluff and just way too much faffing about some might say if you're british (laughs) and not taking away from the core game which is like you go to the base just to kind of upgrade talk to some people and leave you're not there to like run upstairs restock the crates see what's going on over here it's not that style of rpg And so let's hop over into what I think is the most interesting part about Dishonored and why it was the attractive game that it was, the gameplay and the gameplay design. The development team researched unexpected ways the player could combine Corvo's special powers, such as combining a high jump with the ability to teleport in order to travel greater distances than either ability allowed independently. Instead of restricting these exploits, the team tried to design levels to accommodate them. The designers did not consider all of the powers they conceived during development, such as the power to become a shadow that can move along walls to be suitable for the game. Some existing powers went through several revisions, such as a version of Bend Time, which caused the player to unfreeze enemies when touched, and Possession, which allowed the player to control a victim remotely without inhabiting their body, but this offered less challenge. Balancing the effectiveness of the player's powers was considered difficult, Colantonio said, We wanted to give the player very strong powers to make the player really a badass, but at the same time, we didn't want the game to be too easy. Each power has a duration, mana cost, and other variable properties that allow the team to effectively scale even the most destructive of abilities by making them costly to use frequently or limiting the time they remain active. Dishonored's stealth system was originally based on that of the Thief series, which uses level lighting and shadows to determine whether an enemy can detect the player character's presence. However, it was decided that it was unrealistic that an enemy could stand directly in front of a player hiding in shadows and not detect them. It was also considered that making certain areas dark hid the designer's work and contrasted poorly with well-lit areas. Much of the ambient dialogue was written to be lengthy and add background detail to the game world and to entertain stealth players who may be in a single area for a long time. Conversely, main story dialogue was written to be short to compensate for the player being able to interrupt or kill the character who's speaking. This, to me, was one of the most interesting things that I was researching and reading about, was that that's so smart, is to have like kind of like that mundane street chatter, or just like anyone like in a building that you're in, have these conversations as you're stealthing through, because... You know, you got to be there a while, wait for guards to pass, you know, wait for your opportunity. Whereas, yeah, you may just walk in on your target and just shank them, like walk right up and shank them or like incapacitate them. So like, I remember a couple of these, and especially in Dishonored 2 when you get there, like they're like, I do this. This is me. Okay, kill me now, please. You know, they, they like get all their exposition out really quickly or they're, you know, in a frustrated state or they yell at someone to go away. And then that's kind of like right when you can strike. So it makes sure that they're not like in this big monologue and then you just interrupt and don't get to hear like this full story or just the interesting elements of gameplay. And I'm definitely a guy who does not love to listen to a long character conversation. So I would definitely be the guy running in there just like, nope, you're done. It's over. Mm -hmm. Sorry, man. 
Good talk, though. <laughs> Good talk. Great, great game. Great game. So to design the missions, the designers began with a cohesive area, which they filled with activities for the player. They defined paths to the target areas and developed and expanded them. They then populated the area with NPCs, which they assigned to patrol routes and functions. So, you know, especially guards, you know, going up and down an area or let's say a fisherman walks through and then starts fishing in this spot or, or clean their clothes, you know, something along those lines, giving them those preset routes. The designers would then observe how players interacted with the level using their abilities and powers to test whether the area provided a suitable challenge for the available powers and then redesign the level as needed. At first, the levels featured little direction information to emphasize the player's ability to traverse them as they chose. But in testing, players became lost or obeyed NPC commands when they were told not to enter an area, leaving them unable to proceed. In response, the directors introduced more visual cues and verbal hints to direct the players. So yeah, kind of like guiding them along, whereas if you're a goody two-shoes player and the guard's like, can't go here, you're like, I guess the game's over. <laughs> I can't go past this guard. I guess I will just <laughs> you know, sit so in this prison cell for the next million years. Some features and ideas were removed during the design process, including a mental institution where Corvo would have faced sound-sensitive patients. So very similar like the heartbeat and like working with haptics. This would be kind of that same thing. Discussing the use of violence and the consequences of in-game freedom, developer Joe Houston recounted his experience while watching a tester play a mission to infiltrate a masquerade ball. Houston determined that not killing the NPCs opened up more objectives and interactions, but the tester systematically killed every NPC in the level, which Houston found disconcerting. The team came under pressure to get rid of a scene from the end of the game where Samuel in response to a player killing indiscriminately throughout the game, can betray Corvo by alerting enemies to his presence. Smith explained, quote, Everybody just wants to be told in a video game that you're great, no matter what you do. If you slaughter everybody, you killed the maids, you killed the old people, you killed the beggars, you're great. Here's a medal, you're a hero. We decided that sounds psychotic. It doesn't match our values. What we wanted was to let you express yourself in the game, but to have the world react to that at least in some way. Samuel betraying you and firing off that flare was something we had to fight for. And so this is my gaming doppelganger right here. This guy <laughs> yeah. went to the ball and they're saying, hey, just try and sneak around, blend in. I'm like, you know what? No, I could fight every single person here. Let's do it. Let's yep. have a brawl. I'm terrible at assassination games. I was amazing at the early Assassin's Creed games for this reason, because I literally could fight like 17 people at the same time but at a certain point it's just not designed to be that way so but could you imagine like you this joe guy's sitting behind this tester and is just like all right let's see how he does level see how he does level <laughs> just blood across the screen and screams and he's just slowly sweating bullets like am i in the room with a murderer right now who is this person i love that point in the quote, it's like, which Houston found disconcerting. Yep. <laughs> I would have been that guy for sure. Like in the first Assassin's Creed game, when you had to return to the little place where you got the mission after you yeah, made yeah, the yeah. final assassination, I would just stand on that rooftop and fight everyone till there was no one left. And then I would hop down. So wrapping it up, Dishonored was officially released to manufacturing, or went gold as the industry calls it, on September 28th, 2012 and released in France and North America on October 9th, 2012, 
with the rest of Europe and Australia receiving it just a few days later. So we had a little bit of a little tiny baby bit marketing here. Dishonored was displayed for the public at the 2012 Electronic Entertainment Expo, also known as E3, and received four nominations from the Game Critics Awards for Best Action Adventure Game, Best Console Game, Best Original Game, and the Overall Best of Show Award. The trailer was a three-minute overview and showcase of the game's setting, character abilities, assassinations, and featured the Drunk Whaler as the song played throughout the video. There was also a mobile game Bethesda Softworks developed. It was called Dishonored Rat Assassin, and it was released free of charge on August 30th, 2012. The game requires players to use a knife and crossbow to kill rats while avoiding bombs. Rat Assassin was well-received for the variety and quantity of content provided, but received some criticism for dark visuals that made it difficult to see the rats. The game drew frequent comparisons to another mobile game, Fruit Ninja. Dishonored Rat Assassin band name, I call it. <laughs> All right, you can have it. I'm just going to go ahead and... Oh, and you just have that playing in the background. Just the game going, the Fruit Ninja ripoff. Just kind of going, <laughs> slashing at rats, dodging bombs. You know what? No, yeah. just, just Rat Assassin. Rat Assassin band name, I call it. Ratassin. That's just a medicine now. You can have that <laughs> one. So let's jump over to another thing called Tales of Dunwall. To help establish the lore and history of Dunwall, three animated short films were created regarding characters within the game. The first film, The Awakening, is about the discovery of whale oil and its acceleration of military technology. The second film, The Hand That Feeds, features a young boy marked by the outsider who takes revenge on those who wronged him, but is bitten by one of the rats he controls and dies, becoming one of the first to die from the plague. And the last installment, In the Mind of Madness, is about a man who is struck with dreams of a boy dying from the second film and is then inspired to create his greatest creation, a mask with the image of death that protects the wearer. So kind of given these different elements of Corvo, like the marking from the messenger, the stranger, and then also like the mask and everything else is going on within that world. So kind of a cool way to set it up. Yeah. And then as Derek said, the drunken whaler. As part of the game's promotion, Bethesda employed co-pilot music and sound to develop the ominous The Drunken Whaler, a modified version of the sea shanty Drunken Sailor. Co-pilot decided to use ordinary children to sing the lyrics instead of a professional youth choir, aiming to achieve a dark, haunting quality of the music. Which is definitely something that happens when it's just a kid who can't sing. That's basically yes. what they decided. It's, it's, it's pretty much <laughs> it. You are, you are a haunting individual, no thank you. <laughs> now, however... They found it difficult to recruit children from local schools to sing about slit throats and hungry rats, and instead used child actors, adult singers who could imitate children, and the children of their friends. Instruments included violins, detuned and distorted guitars, and a whaler stomp created by the team who stamped on wooden boards to create a pulsating sound. The drunken whaler appeared in the game's trailer and attracted a positive reception during its presentation at the 2012 E3. Following its debut, the trailer was watched over 850,000 times on YouTube and it was awarded the Machinima Best Trailer Award. And it was, you know, I, I reviewed some of those comments. People were like, sounds sick. Love this song. Should win an award. So those are official reviews by like Bonertown62 <laughs> and, you know, some, some great names out there. <laughs> Thank you. I, if, I, if I got through this podcast without knowing what Bonertown62 thought about the Drunken Whaler, would have failed. What a, what a failure I would be to you guys. <laughs> 
So we had some pre-order bonuses. If UK players pre-ordered the game from Game, Tesco, Shop Tour, Amazon, they'd receive the following in-game exclusives. There was the Void Channel Bone Charm, which increases power duration and time length. There was the White Rat's Friend Bone Charm, which means White Rats would not attack the player. There was the Gutter Feast Bone Charm, which meant the player could eat White Rats for mana regeneration. There was a Whale in-game statue, which unlocks one additional slot for Bone Charm bonuses. There was a book included, the Journal of Granny Rags. It's an in-game book. There were 500 bonus coins, 72 real-life tarot cards, with over 20 including character drawings and others that include facts about the Bone Charms. I mean, that's pretty cool. I Again, I think we've like nostalgia on this so much. I miss really cool pre-order bonuses. And that was just like a pre-order bonus. That wasn't even like a, hey, you have to get the super deluxe version. Yeah, pre-order bonuses are cool when I think they do it like this. It's a lot of... It's very dependent on, I think, if it's retail or exclusive stuff. It also depends a little bit for me mm-hmm. if it comes out later, if it's made available to other people, because I don't love certain pre-order bonuses only being available if you get it through, let's say, a Walmart or a Target, Yes, unless they're just really not that consequential. And I think with this, it can go either way. Like The charms are things that you can use or choose not to use, and there's such like a, a, a small section of it that I'm pretty okay with it. So then lastly, we had the Sneaky Bastards magazine, which was a crowdfunded project that would cover stealth games. The first issue was released December 2013, with Dishonored being the main subject. Since then, Sneaky Bastards has gone on to become an indie game developer. Interesting. So from rags to rats. From rats to riches. (laughs) Rats to riches. You'd love to see it. All right, let's jump over now. Let's talk about the gameplay elements. We've talked a little bit about it. We've talked about some of the powers, but let's break it down. The game world is a series of self-contained, mission-focused areas designed for multiple avenues of exploration in terms of in-game movement and powers. Between missions, the player is taken to a central hub called the Hound Pits Pub, the HPP. You know me. (laughs) You know me at the HPP, (laughs) where Gorbo can meet with his allies, receive mission briefings and alternate objectives, and convert recovered loot into new equipment and upgrades. In-game areas, including loading docks, royal estates, poverty-stricken streets, and even a bathhouse. The player can save the progress anywhere, and the game includes a checkpoint save system, which chefs kiss it all day long, we love to see. The game has four difficulty levels, which modify the effectiveness of health and mana, magic potions, enemies' awareness, damage, and responsiveness. Dishonored features role-playing game elements, such as the ability to upgrade powers and to make moral choices with a focus on non-linear consequences. The game is designed to allow the player to complete it without killing any NPCs, including boss characters and mission targets. An example of a non-lethal situation given by co-creative director Harvey Smith involved the player completing a side mission for a character, and in return, that character had two of Corvo's targets kidnapped and enslaved. Each mission contains multiple ways to explore and reach targets. Movement through and exploration of levels is designed to support Corvo's abilities rather than specific paths that are aimed at a particular gameplay style, such as hacking or sneaking around. Specific elements of missions, such as changes to the color of a target's clothing and mask in one of the missions, are randomized, 
requiring the player to explore the game area to find the target each time the mission is played. The player's actions are not judged to be good or evil, but instead are tracked by a chaos system that records the amounts of friendly fire, violence, and deaths the player causes. This modifies the game world, affecting the story without directly punishing the player or forcing them to choose one style of play over another. For example, an NPC who disapproves of violence may refuse to support the player or may even betray them. The game reacts to the chaos caused in scripted ways such as changing dialogue and dynamic ways such as increasing the presence of rats and plagued citizens. This can affect the active mission and future missions. The system also influences which of the game's two endings is reached, with variations based on which characters live or die. Dishonored features six active powers, four passive powers or enhancements, and 40 bone charms which grant the player supernatural perks, such as the ability to increase the duration of rat possession. Initially, only three bone charms can be active at any time. Up to six can be active through optional upgrades. Smith and Colantonio stated that it is impossible for a player to accrue all of the powers and abilities in a single playthrough. The player requires mana to use these abilities. Mana partially regenerates after use to allow blink and dark vision powers to be used, but mana potions are required to regenerate more mana, restricting the use of higher cost abilities like possession and bend time. Powers include dark vision, which allows the player to see enemies through walls, their field of view, and highlights interactive objects. Blink, a short distance teleportation ability. Possession, allows the player to temporarily inhabit and possess other characters. Devouring Swarm, or the Piranha Strike, as Derek will know it as, which summons a swarm of deadly rats. Wind Blast, a gust of wind that can knock down enemies, or a Fusro Da, some might know it as. And Shadow Kill, that turns dead enemies to ash, preventing their discovery by opposing forces. When it comes to physical weaponry, the player can use weapons including a sword, granades, a crossbow, and pistols. Stealth is based on limiting the player character's visibility, hiding behind objects and buildings, avoiding the enemy's cone of vision, and avoiding lit areas aids in reducing detection. When hiding behind an object, the player can lean around the sides to see the immediate area and eavesdrop. As long as Corvo remains hidden, his enemies will not see him. The player can also look through keyholes to gain insight into closed rooms. Sneaking up behind enemies allows the player to silently subdue them, and unconscious or dead bodies can be moved or hidden. Guards have several states of alertness, ranging from normal to suspicious, and they can become aware of the player's presence or can actively search for them. Enemy AI will respond to sound and can be distracted using sound to lure the guards away from their positions. If the player remains concealed from the guards, their alertness will drop to aware, but it will not return to normal in that mission. Enemies communicate their states of alertness to their allies, increasing the alertness level throughout the mission and allowing for like reinforcements to come in. Guards that maybe like on a top floor will come to the bottom floor if there's enough alertness, enough scrap a dap a going on. They might come down. And for it you. makes sense. I think that's a good element to have because the guards want to communicate with each other and just it, it makes them feel like more of a unit rather than just individuals. So, yes. And especially like when they sound the alarms, things like that, like in a lot of games around this era, modern games mostly have this now, but a lot of games that era, it's like, OK, I'm fighting the, the bottom guards. OK, only the bottom guards attack me and alarms going off. Then you go upstairs and like those guards are like just having a smoke, just chilling and being like, oh, there's an alarm. <laughs> 
oh, look at you, you're here, instead of actually like, responding in kind. Right. Just a little bit of a delay. Mm-hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So. Let's hop over to, I, I think this is maybe one of the more criticized points of the game, but it is necessary, the story. After returning from a foreign voyage to seek aid with the deadly plague ravaging the city, Corvo Atano travels to the Tower of Dunwall and meets with the Empress Jessamy. After delivering a message, they are attacked by teleporting assassins led by Doubt. They magically restrain Corvo, kill the Empress, and kidnap her daughter Emily. The Empress spymaster, Hiram Burroughs, arrives and has Corvo imprisoned for her murder and Emily's abduction. Six months later, the spymaster has seized control of Dunwall as Lord Regent. Interrogating Corvo, the Lord Regent confesses that he masterminded the assassination and framed Corvo. The following day, Corvo is due to be executed. A letter from Empire loyalists is smuggled to Corvo and he is given the means to escape. Samuel ferries Corvo to the Hound Pits Pub, HPP, <laughs> to meet the Loyalists, led by Admiral Havelock. While resting, Corvo is taken to a dream world where he meets the Outsider, who brands Corvo with his mark. Corvo is sent by the Loyalists to eliminate the conspirators behind the Lord Regent's plot, and the player is given the option to kill or otherwise neutralize the targets, the first of which is High Overseer Campbell. Corvo removes the High Overseer and discovers that Emily is being held in a brothel called the Golden Cat under the supervision of twins Custis and Morgan Pendleton. Corvo rescues Emily and eliminates the brothers. After returning to the pub, Emily is taken into the care of Callista to prepare her for becoming Empress, while Corvo is sent to abduct the genius scientist Sokolov, who is responsible for the Lord Regent's powerful technologies. Sokolov is taken to the pub for interrogation, under which he divulges the identity of the Lord Regent's financier, Lady Boyle. Corvo infiltrates Boyle's masquerade ball and disposes of her. After returning to the pub, Havelock confirms they have done enough damage to move against the Lord Regent. Corvo infiltrates the Tower of Dunwall and removes the Lord Regent from power. He learns that the Lord Regent intentionally imported the plague to decimate the lower classes of society, but it escalated out of his control. Corvo returns to the HPP, where the Loyalists celebrate their success. After sharing a drink, Corvo goes to his room and suddenly collapses. Upon waking, he learns that Samuel poisoned his drink at the behest of Havelock and his Loyalist allies Trevor Pendleton and Teague Martin to prevent him from interfering in their plan to install Emily as Empress 
and rule through her, so like a puppet government. Siamu remained loyal to Corvo, however, and had given him a non-lethal dose of the poison, just some sleepy time juice. Siamu sets Corvo adrift on the river and flees. When Corvo wakes, he is taken prisoner by Dowd and his men, who intend to claim the bounty placed on Corvo's head by the now Lord Regent Havelock. Corvo defeats Dowd and his assassins before going into the sewers. Corvo returns to the pub to find it overrun with guards and that Havelock has killed many of the loyalists. He discovers where Havelock has taken Emily and can save Piero, Sokolov, and Callista. Corvo signals to Samuel, who ferries him to the former Lord Regent's lighthouse. He infiltrates the lighthouse and either subdues Pendleton and Martin or finds that Havelock has already killed them, ensuring the loyalist action remains secret. Once finished with Havelock, Corvo may or may not rescue Emily, and Havelock's journal reveals that he suspects that Emily is Corvo's daughter. So the ending varies depending on the level of chaos the players cause throughout the game. If Corvo saves Emily, she ascends the throne as Empress with Corvo at her side. If a small amount of chaos has been caused, a golden age dawns and the plague is overcome. After many decades, Corvo dies of natural causes and Empress Emily Caldwin the Wise buries him beside Empress Jessamine. If much chaos is caused, the city remains in turmoil and is overrun with the plague. If Corvo fails to save Emily, Dunwall crumbles and Corvo flees the city by ship. So yeah, so it's either like, you know, old age, starts to go bad, or pieces out of there. Your choice. So there was some DLC as well. There was the Voidwalker's Arsenal. It was released May 14th, 2013, and contained four different packs that were each available as pre-order bonuses, depending on where you got the game from. This is my kind of DLC here. All the packs contain coins, bone charms, and some in-game unlockables like books and statues. There was the Dunwall City Trials, which came with 10 challenge maps to test the player's combat, stealth, and mobility skills, fighting waves of enemies, doing runs of drop assassinations, and more. It was released on December 11, 2012, costing only $4.99 and would come with additional achievements and trophies. There was the Knife of Dunwall. This DLC puts the player in the boots of Dowd, the assassin that killed the Empress. Through the help of the Outsider, Dowd receives new powers and must fight for redemption while exploring new areas of Dunwall. It was released April 16, 2013 for $9.99. And then lastly, we had the Brigmore Witches. This DLC picks up where the Knife of Dunwall left off. You continue to play as Dowd and are given new abilities and gadgets. The player can also explore new areas of Dunwall. This DLC was released August 14, 2013 for $9.99. All right, let's, uh, let's jazz it up a little bit and let's head over to the music. The original soundtrack for the game was written and produced by Daniel Licht, Voodoo Highway Music, and Post Inc., and Co-Pilot Music and Sound. The music would be performed by various artists, including John Licht, Daniel Licht's nephew, Mary Elizabeth McLynn, and Co-Pilot Music and Sound. Dishonored, the original game soundtrack, was released on October 9th, 2012, through Bethesda Softworks Publishing, containing 13 tracks totaling only 32 minutes and 52 seconds. Little fun fact, Daniel Licht, who did this, also did the main themes for Dexter. Oh, there we go. He'd be out there. Many fans enjoyed exploring the beautiful city of Dunwall within the game, which was partially due to Daniel Licht's soundtrack. Licht's musical interpretation of the game was atmospheric and moody, trying to capture the steampunk feeling that the story is set in. Licht himself said he created the music so the player would feel unsettled with the evil fog 
that fades in and out of the gameplay. He found it challenging to not develop specific character themes due to the few cinematics used in the game. The traditional violins, cellos, and other orchestral strings would make an appearance in the soundtrack, as well as the cymbalum, or hammered dulcimer, a traditional chordophonic instrument originating in Central Eastern Europe. The sound of the cymbalum mixed with piano is what gives the game its popular post-Victorian sound, similar to that of Hans Zimmer's work on Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. The main theme especially uses these sounds, as well as subtle vocals to set the stage for the rest of the soundtrack. Several tracks throughout the game add to the suspense and exploration of the game thanks to their atmospheric sound they produce. Even more so than the track of collected ambient sounds titled Ambience, However, some fans would criticize these parts of the soundtrack for sounding too in-game and not being iPod-esque. For the more action-based side of the soundtrack, upbeat tribal drums can be heard that add to the adventurous side of Dishonored. Again, though, these tracks were called out for having no value outside of the game. The two tracks from the game that would stand out among the rest were the vocal features, and so this isn't necessarily one that Alex is getting on vinyl. No, but I will talk about the vinyl release coming up. So the first of those two tracks that would stand out among the rest was The Drunken Whaler, which was written and performed by Copilot Music and Sound, being dubbed one of the best singles to come out of a game in 2012. It offers the most variation within a singular track, starting with the hauntingly quiet children singing the well-known Sea Shanty Drunken Sailor, quickly ramping into heavy percussion, electric guitar, Hurdy Gurdy and Orchestra. Copilot would opt out of using professional children's singers in order to create more haunting quality. Many critics praised this track for its beautiful mix of a period accurate song with the established character and mood of the rest of the game's sound. Bethesda would have a remixing contest of the piece, with the top 10 entries receiving a t shirt, poster, and copy of the game. The grand prize winner would receive those prizes plus an exclusive interview on the Bethesda blog. The other track that stood out, Honor for All, is a more modern sounding piece of music that plays during the end of game credits and features John Licht and Mary Elizabeth McGlynn on vocals. It is seen as the most, quote, out of game piece of music included in the soundtrack, helping invoke the feelings felt throughout the game and putting them into words. Reviews of the soundtrack were critical of its overly atmospheric in-game sound as well as the shortness of the soundtrack. For $9.99, fans could buy the 32-minute and 52-second long soundtrack where on the same day, Assassin's Creed 3 Liberations and Devil May Cry soundtracks were released for the same price with double the content. The game's soundtrack was seen overall as a fan buy rather than a standalone collection of music. Forbes' Jen Bozier gave the soundtrack a 7 out of 10, stating, quote, I'm not usually a pick-and-choose type of girl, but I'd recommend checking out the previews to decide on the tracks you like best before committing to the whole beast. As good as the songs are atmospherically, this is more of a for-the-diehard fans type of offering. And I agree, and we do get a bit... They do take that criticism well, especially for Dishonored 2 and then the Dishonored kind of spinoff they have. Now, I did double-check this. There is a Dishonored 4 or 5, don't remember that, vinyl set out there for 150 bucks, which does go through all the discography of Dishonored. So if you are a big fan, you want some cool in-game stuff, you want some really cool art, again, I love vinyl for the art pieces of it. It is out there and available. 
if you want this stuff, I guess I should say. That's that's my pitch. There's my sales pitch for you. If you want it, it's there. Let's jump into the release versions. We have the standard on PC, PlayStation 3, 360, and then the upgraded ones for PS4 and Xbox One. Game of the Year, which includes the Dunwall City Trials, the Knife of Dunwall, and the Brigmore Witches, along with the Voidwalker's Arsenal that includes the Acrobatic Killer Pack, Arcane Assassin Pack, Backstreet Butcher Pack, and Shadow Rat Pack, because Backstreet's back all right. And the Definitive Edition, uh, which was all the DLCs with the upgraded graphics for the PS4 and Xbox One. So the standard plus all the extra bits that were added to it. Dishonored was released on Windows, PS3, and Xbox 360 in North America and France, as I'd said, on October 9th, 2012, October 11th in Australia, and October 12th in Europe. Celebrating the North American launch, Smith, Colantonio, and other Arcane Studio staff members from the company's office in Austin, Texas, signed copies of the game at a local GameStop. A Game of the Year edition containing all of those DLCs was released October 2013, and that definitive edition was in August 2015. Regarding the development of the PC version of the game, fans and developers have regarded the legacy of the game as, quote, a religion. Dishonored received positive reviews from critics. Metacritic gave a score of 91 out of 100 for the Windows version, 89 out of 100 for the PlayStation 3 version, and 88 out of 100 for the Xbox 360 version. Reviewers likened Dishonored to well-received games from the early 2000s, such as Deus Ex, and the Thief video game series. The Telegraph's Tom Hoggins said it is like the, quote, thinking man's games from the turn of the century which cherished player choice and control. Comparing it against contemporary, quote, noisy, brash thrill rides obsessed with military oorah and barely interactive set pieces. So the, the gauntlet for you shooter fans out there has been thrown by Dale. <laughs> Dale called Dishonored one of the greatest games of this generation and wrote that it excelled by drawing inspiration from older games and allowing players to figure out solutions without advice. Dale also called it the first true stealth game for a long time and the closest comparison to Thief in the current generation of games. Schreier stated that the game blends the do-what-you-want structure of Deus Ex with the masterful world design of Bioshock. Throughout 2012 and 2013, Dishonored won three awards, including Best Action Adventure Game, Best Game, and Audience Choice, as well as 23 additional nominations. Dishonored did so well in sales that Bethesda would state that they had a new franchise on their hands. It was the number one selling game over the November 2013 holiday weekend. The game was popular among other game designers as well, Bungie co-founder and chief creative officer Jason Jones said Dishonored was his favorite game of 2012, stating, quote, it surprised me, it entertained me, it was different enough that it kept me going. It's a little, little halo clap there. So when it came to the DLCs, the first installment of the story-based DLC, The Knife of Dunwall, was praised for its level design, which encouraged exploration to find hidden content and alternative routes through areas. The modifications to certain abilities, particularly Blink, were similarly well-received for the changes they brought to the gameplay from the main game. The story, however, was generally criticized. Polygon noted that the deadly assassin Dowd had no motive for seeking redemption, and allowing him to be played as a non-lethal character created a disconnect with the narrative. IGN considered that it felt like only half of a complete game, 
lacking any urgency in its story and featuring a disappointing conclusion. The Brickmore Witch's story received a mixed response, with Destructoid saying that it offered a more gripping narrative, while Polygon stated that it lacked that same tension as the Knife of Dunwall, and the ending felt rushed and unsatisfying. However, the gameplay was generally considered an improvement, providing more intricate level design and nuanced world-building that produced gameplay requiring a more thoughtful approach. PC Gamer appreciated that the levels each had their own distinct theme and adequately provided for both stealth and violent gameplay. While Polygon said that only the last level improved over the preceding DLC, introducing new mechanics that force changes in stealth players. So I think we kind of get this out of Arcane, at least in this era. Great with mechanics, great with level design, can't tell a story to save their lives, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, Dishonored is, is really all about the gameplay. That's the most gripping part about it. And the story is a little bit secondary. So I understand the criticisms. Still a very highly rated game. Still a very great game. While at first glance, the game featured very few female characters. And those that were present in the game were either dead, kidnapped, or boring leaving many female gamers to be disgruntled with how the game portrayed women. This included the stereotypical brothel, ditzy maids, and kind old women. Becky Chambers wrote an article on why the female characters in the game are essential to the story of Dishonored. One of the items in the game, the heart, reveals information about items and people. Chambers used the item on many of the female characters, and some of the things the heart revealed surprised her. When used on Kalista, the heart says she dreams of freedom and the decks of whaling ships fast after the beasts of sea, but alas, she is a woman. Later in the game, it is implied that the heart belonged to the Empress, showing that the line for Kalista came from the mind of a mother patiently teaching her young daughter daily lessons on what is appropriate for little girls. Another interesting woman, Cecilia, who has overworked hands and a meek voice, has the heart tell the player that, the fabric of the city is made of stuff such as she. It was from here that Becky writes in her article that, quote, those were the two that made me realize that Dishonored is fully aware of how the women within it are treated and knows how unfair that treatment is. It knows how unhappy these women are. When I played this game, I did not get the sense that gender discrimination was included simply because it's habitual or historically accurate. Dishonored is, first and foremost, a story about corruption. Dishonored as a whole was supposed to make players not feel good about the treatment of women, as well as acknowledging the gender stereotypes within the game. Modifius Entertainment, which is an RPG tabletop creator of games such as Star Trek, Fallout, Elder Scrolls, and Conan, kind of focusing on like the video game worlds, would adapt the Dishonored game into a 300-page core book, containing everything players would need to play Dishonored as an RPG tabletop, released on September 29th, 2020. The core book would feature an in-depth look at the world, its history, its people, and a comprehensive storytelling guide. This guide would include explanations for the different rules, ranging from grim assassins and rugged criminals to intrepid explorers and, you know, loyalists that you could play through, with the story's antagonists and plot hooks for the character inspiration. Four mini-campaigns were included in all called The Oil Trail, which were designed as an introduction to the city of Dunwall, you know, kind of as they figured out that whale oil. The game employed a version of Modifius's 2D20 game design system and would include various accessories, such as custom dice and cards. So if you're interested in some tabletop stuff, you know, D&D, which we're playing right now, plug for the Patreon if you want to come play D&D, but we're playing that now. Uh, it's also like, like Pathfinder. In those games, make your own thing up. 
pretty fun if you wanted to check it out. And that pretty much wraps it up as our coverage of Dishonored, which, again, was a game that really blew up in 2012. I think it was something that people were craving. Because if you think back at that time, it was kind of like movies were at that point. Sequel after sequel after sequel after sequel. And this is a fresh start that they kind of talked about. It's like, it's not a shoot em, shoot em, bang em up at the time. It's, it's kind of this new exploration of stealth and combat. So, pretty sweet. And stealth games were... I think they were available, right? But there were always so many challenges within stealth games. There were very specific paths that you had to take in order to complete missions. And this game really opened that up and it gave the player more options to complete these things. And so I think that's why Dishonored stands out for a lot of people. It was a really exciting game in 2012. I remember this coming out and people seeing the gameplay and thinking, Wow, this is like this is definitely a different game. This isn't like anything else that's out right now. Mm-hmm. You know, as I had said, like I couldn't be Sam Fisher. I can't do the like, oh, you're alerted, game over, pretty much. This is like, oh, you're alerted, but guess what? It's now combat time, and now switches style of gameplay where you're now like hand to hand combat, or that you have to like run and hide so that you don't get overwhelmed. You know, so they definitely shifted it up, which is really really good. So, as always, Derek. Why did we choose this game? What do you think of it? Well, of course, you know, like I said, it really just opened up, I think, the stealth type of game. And it also included some cool RPG elements where you got to be the player that you really wanted to be. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what just assassination games were missing for such a long time. You always had to do things in a specific way. You were a specific person. If you got caught, you know, during a task... It would just mess up an entire mission. This one gave you a little bit more freedom to where mistakes were okay. And you had ways of dealing with them in the way that I think other assassination games didn't always do the best job. So I found that really interesting. I'm going to give this game an 8 out of 10. And I think I'm just going to leave it there. I think 8 out of 10 is very fair. I think for the most part, this game got 9 out of 10 for Mm -hmm. the time period. Going back and looking at it now, I think even for a 2012 game, I don't love it graphically. Um, and I know that it it kind of fits into that era of, of games like that, I guess. Sure. I feel like there were prettier games still, though, in 2012. This game, when I go back and look at it, it really feels more like a late 2000s game in terms of the graphics. So that's why I'm going to bump it down just that one but wholeheartedly agree with everyone else that gave it that 9 out of 10 for the time period. It's just like now going back and thinking about it, I I really feel better about an 8 out of 10. And I can understand that. You know, they did stylize it, but even looking back at some of the trailers, just at not the cop-outs, but I think having to deal with consoles at that time as well, like the fire effects, the blood effects, were just these PNGs flying around. It didn't Mm -hmm. feel like it was next-gen. If you go say. and if yeah, if you go and the street piranhas are going after these bodies and you watch that unfold, it's like, wait, what? What did I just watch? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's just kind of silly sometimes. And I understand there's functionality, there's other things going on there. It's this game wasn't meant to be a visual marvel. It was meant to be a very functional piece of gaming yes the technology was 1000 percent there and done so well so again your score doesn't matter but let's continue on let's talk about what i'm thinking about <laughs> it when we go dishonor was one that we really chose as derek had said for the marvels that arcane was able to pull off 
in these mechanics, you know, and not suppressing being like, I don't want the, I don't want my player. Oh no, they're not supposed to get up to that balcony. I didn't want them to get there. What they did was like, okay, you know what? They can get there. Let's do it. Let's make sure that if they get to that balcony, they can then traverse the roof a little bit to skip over these guards if they're good enough and understand their powers. And that's what I really appreciate from them that they gave it into the hands of the player. And, and we even had reviews talking about that. that. That wasn't seen a lot because when you're on rails, they wanted you to stay on rails. They didn't want you to go off the path. They wanted you to do the story and that's it. And it was a different game for the time. It was breaking up the Call of Duties, the battlefields, anything else that was kind of popping up over and over and over again and, and just basically cashing in on the shooter aspect of it. They tested those waters and they worked. And by doing this game, they joined a major company, which has now joined another major company with a buyout from Microsoft to continue to do these. Even with like the idea of like, ooh, possible Dishonored 3, and Arcane now is working on their own style of Left 4 Dead, but with vampires and some other stuff. I think that's the one. If I'm wrong, just let me know I'm an idiot. Either way. But they've got some <laughs> new stuff coming out with Papa Microsoft and Papa Zenimax, like both funneling money in there and letting the studios kind of do what they want uh so it's very very cool to see so if i had to rate it i would rate it um a plus first of all because Derek calling it street piranhas great name for crazy rats love it love that band name i call it that street piranhas uh, also add in Derek's band name uh add in some fourth wall breaking by talking about this by doing a rating um I'm, (laughs) i'm technically breaking rating rules but hey they adapt as we go um subtract out the rats, uh, even though they're a plus, they're, they're a minus because no one wants that. Multiply how many times I never used my abilities because I kept forgetting I had them and panicked and then would just fight someone and die on occasion because I'm not good at this game. So add that in. Multiply it, though, by the satisfying times you did get a good kill. I was not a peaceful person. <laughs> Multiply those, those kills you got. Oh, oh, the little stabby stab. Ooh, and then X exponent exponentially double itself on how cool your gosh dang knife was because it was basically a butterfly knife you'd flip out to then do some stabbings pretty freaking cool out of 1666 baby that's a pretty good rating but i feel like you didn't miss one thing oh and what is throw it back to the guitar hero episode that we did even the rats just go and just play that song repeat while you play this entire game (laughs) that's true that's going to be the thing that takes it up to the next level if you don't know what we're talking about you got to hit up the guitar hero episode to fully understand but i'm going to pump up alex's rating a little bit just right there you're not wrong i appreciate you know your other rating throw it out let's add that to my rating it's a dual rating now first ever you've heard it here folks history has been made in the rating systems today thank you Terry. i'm getting on board i'm i'm moving over just slowly bit by just bit piece by slowly piece but surely baby piranha by piranha <laughs> research for this episode was done by alex kendall Derek baker richard scanlon and evan barr the music for this episode was recorded composed written by our friend evan barr so again lovely people you love to see a little, little team coming together and churning it out doing you some good things um, as always, the other people that are doing the good things are our patrons over at patreon.com slash finish the fight. That is where if you really want to put some money behind our support, that's where you can do it and where we're doing a lot of cool things. As I mentioned earlier, we're on a D&D campaign, Minecraft server, shirts, stickers, bonus episodes, post shows, a bit of everything. Check it out over there if you're interested. And I want to thank those people today, starting with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Chuff, Trace, Mega, Nick Hyman, 
Richard Scanlon, Mick Chief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Crow, Mr. Toot, and Kevin Benson. So thank you all truly for the support. It helps us keep going and a churning away at some content. If you haven't yet, please give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter, and you can join our Discord. It's free to join. Alex and I are there. We're hanging out. We're having a great time. That's definitely the spot where we're most active, and we would love to see you there. As always, check us out over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. And check Derek's channel out over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is thebakerman247. We'll be streaming some cool content. Um, We're on and off that, kind of depending on what's going on. But we've got some really cool stuff over there for you. And if you haven't, check out our different merch sites. That is over at etsy.com slash finishthefightstore. And we have some other stuff over at our merchy merch like clothing store, uh, which is linked below. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening platform. Please leave us a review if you haven't already. We love to hear from you guys. The feedback helps us out a lot. And again, let us know what you think of Dishonored. Have you were able to play it when it came out? Were you too young? That's terrifying. Uh, But (laughs) were you able to play Dishonored? And what did you think of it? Have you played the second one? Hit us up on our socials, as Derek had said, and let us know. And with that, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And as always, this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Mm-hmm.